Hi everyone, my name's Megan as Rachel said, so welcome to those that um, I don't know. And as she said, I'm reading from Mark chapter 10 this morning, so please follow along in your Bibles, on your devices, or it'll be on the screens behind me. Mark chapter 10. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become flesh, one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honour your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving, because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time? Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man, said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. very well read. I'm finding these chapters um, just full of drama and actually just there's really interesting things happening in here. And so I would actually commend you after today, um, given some of the things I'm going to talk about, to actually go back and read chapter 10 and soak in some of the things, uh, because this will not be one of my shorter sermons, I'm afraid. Welcome. All right, now, I've, uh, I've finally got around to uh, watching The Crown on Netflix, you might say with renewed interest in Queen Elizabeth. 
And at the end of the second episode, no spoiler alert because it's all history, right? Uh, King George VI dies and Winston Churchill gives a stirring speech. Uh, Winston acknowledges the greatness of the king and all that's transpired, especially during the Second World War and the way that the king had held steadfast and rallied people to the cause of his great nation. But he also acknowledges that around the corner is great uncertainty and change. And yet, in that was a hope of the future coming on those same tides of change. He says this, he says, Now I must leave the treasures of the past and turn to the future. I, whose youth was passed in the August, unchallenged and tranquil glories of the Victorian era, may well feel a thrill in invoking once more the prayer and the anthem, God save the Queen. Now, God indeed did do a great work in the steadfast and humble faith of Elizabeth Regina. And I start with this, not only because it's timely as we reflect on her service, but also as we think about a change of sovereignty and the great uncertainty that comes with that, but also the great thrill of hope. Now, I'm not talking about a change in sovereignty of uh, the Commonwealth, I'm talking about the change of sovereignty of coming under Christ the King. Because as we look at Mark's Gospel, he speaks of his kingship, as it were, of what it means to take up your cross and follow Him. And as we look at all that He describes, we can't help but feel a great sense of uncertainty, challenge. He is calling us to radical new ways and yet also a thrill of hope and glory. I see in this passage a picture of the upside-down life, both as Jesus calls us in our upside-down ways, but also as He now upends us, maybe even the right way up. There are many things in this passage that are challenging, and uh, as uh, there's no way I'm going to cover, I'm choosing not to cover all of it, I, I'm going to try and speak to some of the broad themes of the passage. I'm going to look at the childlike faith that Jesus calls us to, of how we are to use wealth and power, but in all honesty, I can't do these justice, nor can I triage the first 12 verses of this passage on divorce. And so I'm going to choose, as much as I would rather not speak on that topic, uh, and that would be to my failure as a leader even, I'm going to choose to spend most of our time actually looking at the topic of divorce, of marital breakdown, and of what Jesus calls us to in this upside-down yet glorious life. Let me begin as we look at, I'm going to start, as I said, I'll come back to the, uh, that portion on divorce, but let me start in verse 13, just briefly picking out some of the themes of this passage that we might orient ourselves well, because as I love this, and often I draw upon this passage as I do baptisms, and as I uh, hold up the, the children, sometimes they're too big to hold, but as I hold up the children and say, look, he, here is what Jesus is calling us to, childlike faith. The disciples say, get them away. They're annoying. They're going to kind of mess up your ministry. You've got a plan. People are trying to listen. They're, they're making noise. They're kind of they're causing a racket. It's a fuss. They're messy. Just send them away. And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, let the little come to me. Oh, children, they certainly are messy. And I could, I could spend quite a bit of time talking about illustrations of that. But I don't have the time. Nor would that be appropriate, perhaps. But uh, as Jesus calls the messy ones to himself, we must find ourselves amongst the messy ones. We must actually acknowledge that we are but children 
And, and what are children like? Well, not only are they messy, but they're dependent. They, they know they need their mother and father. They are, they are open, sometimes too open. That they come as they are before they learn the art of adulting, that is to kind of wear a mask and cover up that messiness. Now, when a child knows they need help, sometimes they don't even know what's wrong. Sometimes they don't know what's going to help, but all they can do is cry out, Mom, Dad. Scripture gives us three times the phrase, Abba, Father. As we cry out to our Father in the same childlike faith, let's invoke that phrase as we embrace our messiness, as we come before Jesus open and not all adulting, masked and hypocritical, but instead dependent, that we might receive that which the good Father has given us in Jesus. Now, Jesus has to help the adults unlearn their ways and to embrace this upside-down life. He says in the next portion, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And we might say, it's simple, right? You've just got to repent and believe. (laughs) Yes, it is that simple. But Jesus is helping us to see the weight of the cross so that we might actually take up the cross. We might actually trust Jesus above ourselves. We might actually repent. And he gives an example here on wealth. Now, in this particular case, a rich young ruler approaches Jesus and wants to affirm his righteous living with a loaded question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, we say, easy, come to Christianity Explored. Uh, do, do two ways to live. There's kind of a nice little box and kind of at the end it tells you, right? It's, it's easy. Now, has anyone seen that evangelism course that finishes with, how do you live for Jesus? You sell everything you have and you give it to the poor. That's the last box, last night. <laughs> no one's been to that evangelism course. Why does Jesus answer the question like that? Because he knows the heart of man. When I'm speaking to people who don't yet know Jesus or running an evangelism course, I do not know the heart of each person. But Jesus looks straight into the heart of this rich young ruler and he says to him, for you to take up your cross and follow me, I can see that you are attached to wealth. And that you have this facade of righteousness. If you really want to live for me, you have to give up everything. You have to live with Christ as your sovereign over all. And that will mean detaching yourself to the wealth that you hold on to. And at that, the young man leaves disappointed. Jesus is right. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when we realize that, surely our cries with the disciples, then who can be saved? Friends, the Jesus life is not an add-on. It's not something you take on as a supplement to the way you are living. No, He will turn your whole life upside down, the right way up even. And only when we see the love of Christ in His death for us, may we be able to say, there is nothing I can give you. And there is nothing I need hold on to. For you are above all and all-sufficient, and only then with eyes of faith that we are spiritually reborn, and then indeed all things are possible with God. We must see Jesus' teaching here on wealth as controversial as His teaching on divorce. If only I could spend some more time on that. But we live in a very materialistic, wealth-saturated, focused world. We must detach ourselves from that and use those things for His glory and not for ourselves. 
just as Jesus speaks for a third time about his death and resurrection, indeed the key to seeing and responding Jesus, the two disciples or two disciples around him have nothing short of a brain fart. They say, let us sit at your right hand and left hand in glory. (laughs) Why would they ask that? Oh, how we love to win the crown and be seen doing it. Now, that's a phrase from St. Augustine's Confessions from the 4th century. Uh, He recognised in his own sinful heart a longing for power and recognition. That is at the heart of what's happening for these disciples. They kind of anticipate, they can smell the glory, but they don't know still, even though Jesus for the third time has said that it's going to be through the cross, they don't know that that glory is going to be by taking up their cross. And so they go, I can smell glory, I want some of that. Jesus says, you will indeed find it but it will be through the cross. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. That is a reference to Jesus' death and the death they will die in Him. Now, you know, Jesus doesn't even expect to sit it out at the right hand of God. He doesn't use His power like that, like from a distance. He mucks in, joins with the messy, the sinful, the brokenhearted, and He shows us the true nature of God as He submits His power to the Father's will, for He did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom, so that our sins would be dealt with, for He died in our place. Our rejection of God paid for, our failures fully met in the gift of Jesus we've now received, for what was His and is His is now ours And what is ours, our brokenness, our sinfulness, the wrath that we deserve is now His, born on the cross. This is our God. This is what Jesus calls us to. He's not calling us to an upside-down radical life without showing us that first. For He gave up the glories of heaven and served among us. This is our God. Now, to tease out the kind of church that is born out of this ransom, in the very nature of this God who serves, we'll have to come back, right? Vision Month, that'll be a time to explore that. But so far, we can see in our passage, of everyone who has approached Jesus, they have totally missed the mark. They have come preloaded with their vision and their version of how life is to be lived and Jesus takes that, He turns it upside down and He says, this is what it is like to follow Me. And so it is with the Pharisees who come to test Jesus on divorce. Now, as I said, I will spend most of our time on this because I need to speak carefully and sensitively and pastorally as I unpack the background of what the Pharisees are asking, but as well acknowledging that On this topic, there is great heartache among us. As one author said about divorce, this kind of heartache is only second to death. And so I greatly feel inadequate to preach on this, and yet having walked alongside many and spending time in God's Word, let me explore this and hold out the way that Jesus is calling us to live. Now, before we get to these words of Mark's Gospel, I need to help us understand what it is the Pharisees are coming with. That is, they've come to test Him. They come with a background, 
and let us see that background. Now, that background comes all the way from the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God speaks of the union of a man and a woman as becoming one flesh. Marriage is a, is a holy mystery of which a man and a woman are joined together and become one just as Christ is one with the church. That's Paul's point in Ephesians as he picks up on Genesis. Marriage is a reflection of the covenant love of God and His people. Covenant being that kind of, that, that big word of Scripture, that kind of the treaty, that kind of the bond, the, the marriage, the promise, the faithfulness of God. Now, let me say just at the very beginning, as I hold up this kind of ideal and honour and symbolism of God's love in marriage, let me say to those who are single, as was our Lord Jesus, singleness symbolises a different kind of aspect of God's love. For Jesus demonstrates His love to many, free from the concerns of a pleasing a spouse. In fact, Jesus inaugurates a new kind of family as those who do God's will, the church family. Singleness helps us as part of uh, being together in different stations of life to make sure that our nuclear families are permeable, to make sure that we have this bond together. And so singleness is to be lifted in high honour as we are made new in this family of God. But for the sake of this topic, let me show you something in the Old Testament of God's description of Himself in the marriage covenant with Israel. He says, let me just go to the next one here. For your husband is your maker, this is God speaking to Israel, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And there is Israel, this kind of this small nation, being held up in a marriage, as it were, with, with God, the maker of all things. In Ezekiel, there's this description of God saying, I clothed you with embroidered cloth, adorned you with ornaments, a crown on your head, dressed you with fine linen. There is this tenderness to God as He, the maker of the earth, lifts up this lowly nation as His own. And yet, God describes Himself with all its heartache as a divorcee. Did you know that? Just in that same chapter of Ezekiel, He then goes on to say, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. He's speaking there about how they were meant to kind of live in the covenant relationship with God, but they hoard themselves out, to use that language from Ezekiel, to other gods, uh, just to be like the other nations. They left behind the, the love of God to go seek after gods that would please them in various ways. Further in Jeremiah, more explicitly even, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. I hadn't reflected much on these things until the preparation of this sermon. It made me thankful that for all those who know the heartache of divorce, God knows that Himself. He knows your pain. Now, divorce was a concept that was well known in ancient society. Uh, in fact, it was even, uh, it was not only known, but allowed as part of societal life in the Old Testament. 
See, the, the ancient Near East was a cruel place, particularly for women. Now, consider, say, a Babylonian law of the same kind of vintage of the Old Testament, where it was uh, written in law that should, should a man decide to leave his wife, he could come back at any time and claim her. So there she was left without rights, uh, to fend for herself, probably without even an income, to look after the children, probably even. And at any point, she was not able to kind of uh, remarry, because at any point her husband could come back and claim her. What position does that leave her in a society? A very vulnerable one, without rights. Whereas the divorce in the Old Testament was a release. It was a way of uh, releasing particularly a victim from a marital bond, to separate that which was one. Now, if we will look at, say, a particular case in Deuteronomy 24, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent, literally sexually, sexual immoral, immorality, about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. That is, she is not left without rights uh, to fend for herself. She is actually released from that covenant, that marriage, in order that she might be protected and honoured. Now, I think it's Deuteronomy 24 that the Pharisees have in mind when they approach Jesus. Now, they approach Him and say, you know, Moses said, we're allowed to do this. And there were two schools of thought, two rabbinic schools of thought around interpreting Deuteronomy 24. Uh, there was one school that said, well, uh, you know, it's quite clear that uh, if, if there's sexual immorality, then there is grounds for divorce. But there was another school of thought they picked up on this because. Uh, there's a cause that allows divorce, and we could actually expand that. That's one example, perhaps, and there are many causes for divorce. And so, uh, this other school came up with sort of like an any-cause-fault divorce. That is, you could come up with any number of reasons. And so, they come to Jesus and say, you know, in the midst of this debate that was contemporary of the time, Jesus, which of these schools is right? Is it permissible? By what laws can we do these things? And of course, they're not really asking because they want to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, they're asking because they want to know what they can get away with, really. And Jesus continually, consistently calls them out on their hypocrisy. Jesus doesn't play the game. That's hard to read. He says, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you this law. That's the answer he gives. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you this law. He's basically saying, you're asking the wrong question, is it lawful divorce? Is it, you know, how much can I get away with within the bounds of the law? As we know, particularly looking at something like Romans 8, uh, Paul speaks about what the law was unable to do. We now have as we live by the Spirit. You can't actually put sort of guards on how to live life to please Jesus. Uh, you can't just keep bumping up against those just doing this law and that law. No, no, we're called to live with our whole heart for Jesus and you can't make a law for that. But when, G when Jesus says, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you this law, He is upholding the sanctity of marriage. We might even say, and this will need some nuance, it is always sinful to break marriage vows. Now, there, are, there is sinfulness that causes that breakage, but it grieves God's heart where there is such a breakage. 
Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. These are the very uh, words used at the beginning of uh, any marital ceremony that I run. It is a lifelong commitment and the Creator's purpose has not changed. Jesus is stopping us from saying, well, we live in a broken world, we gave it a good shot, didn't work out. He is calling us to know something of the nature of His covenant faithfulness that endures despite brokenness. Now, many of us will know a particular verse in Malachi that I think is actually very damaging. Many of us will know it by this, God hates divorce, and even as I say that it is always sinful to break marriage vows, you might have even thought of it. But let me tell you that this verse is very hard to translate, and we need to be able to say something much more than this, and I'll tell you why in a moment. I think as the, um, our, the version of the Bible that we use in church here, as in most of the new versions, translate it like this, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice or violence. It's not God hates divorce, it's if he hates and divorces his wife, most likely. Now, what is clear is that God opposes the sin that leads to divorce. For the one who hates instead of protects and loves stands against God and His purposes. That is, whatever the reason, there is a sin in breaking the covenant. This is what Jesus is affirming. Now, I think we need to be able to say more than simply God hates divorce because there are two kinds of people that I weep for. Those who, when they disclose their divorce, are judged by simplistic understandings of this verse. I have heard so many stories from people who feel ashamed to mention that they are divorced because they feel that this is all people use to judge them. I weep for them. Secondly, there are those who have stayed in abusive marriages because all they know is God hates divorce, and when they are a victim of one who hates instead of protects, and yet they stay in that marriage because of a verse like this, a misunderstanding even. Now, What I've opened up now begins an exploration of the biblical grounds for divorce. Mark 10 appears to hold no ground out for divorce. And so we've got to do a little bit of work here. Is Jesus making a new radical law, given that divorce was permissible in the Old Testament, but now raises the bar that high that there is now no ground? Well, again, yes and no. Jesus doesn't let us kind of box him into kind of laws that we can so easily abuse. Remember, Mark is responding to a test, a hostile question. But I think we can provide a bit more clarity on this. And Matthew records two cases of Jesus' teaching on the same topic, but with a bit more of an expansion of what Jesus is teaching. And so in Matthew 5, he says, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Now, notice that this carries on the same theme from Deuteronomy 24. That is that adultery and sexual immorality really does break the marital covenant. 
But given the, uh, even this sort of, this restriction alone, given how people used and abused divorce then and still do, the disciples in Matthew's Gospel respond, it is better not to marry. (laughs) Jesus responds, not everyone can accept this word. Jesus is still calling us to a hard word, for there are lots of other reasons we'd love to get around. What Jesus is saying here is that adultery does break the covenant of marriage and just as God wrote a letter of divorce for Israel for their adulterous idolatry, He knows the kind of how this tears apart the covenant of where the two were made one. But I want you to notice the language of victim in this. I take it to mean in this case that the woman is the victim of the adultery, she has suffered adultery in the sense that She is the one against whom adultery has been committed, the one to whom the adulterer has been unfaithful. And divorce in this case is protecting and releasing the victim. God has a heart for the vulnerable, the victims, the oppressed. He cares. For as much as He wants us to uphold the covenant, He sees those who are victims. There is another exception of biblical grounds for divorce mentioned in 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The person is not bound in such circumstances. And in there he's talking to uh, the context of a couple. I mean, this is, you know, this is first-generation Christians. And so it might be a case where we're in a marriage, one has become a Christian and the other has not. And if, sort of under the grounds of almost religious persecution, as it were, the unbeliever is like, I didn't sign up for this, and and leaves the believer, then Paul is saying, you are released. Uh, You are not bound. You are free from that marriage because you have been left abandoned. And unlike the Babylonian law that gives no release to the woman who remains bonded to the deserting man, we can trace back the same kind of idea to Exodus. Now, the, verse, the chapter in Exodus does pick up on polygamy, which is to open up a whole can of worms. Uh, let me say that the Old Testament uh, implicitly speaks against polygamy, and yet, in sort of a strange way to our ears, permits and restrains it. But let me just leave that aside to pick up on the one thing I do want us to see. And that is that a man shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing. That is, again, she's released. There is this same idea of abandonment and protection. Now, if we were to combine this with the passage from Malachi, God stands opposed to the one who hates and does violence instead of protecting. We must see here that abuse has to be called out and indeed is a covenant-breaking behaviour under the category of abandonment. Now, let me be clear, there is nothing in Scripture that justifies domestic abuse and repeated domestic abuse in all its forms breaks a covenant of marriage. And for this reason, I've actually asked for these posters to be put in all of our bathrooms at church. It was an initiative of our synod a number of years ago uh, to work with Anglicare and Safe Ministry to create a campaign about knowing 
domestic abuse. That is, that we might understand what domestic abuse is and say no to it. For the person who feels like they are suffering abuse in all its forms, and whether that could be physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, for the person who is suffering in that marriage, do not think of yourself as denying yourself and taking up your cross and enduring that. That is not denying yourself. That is not what Jesus is calling us to when He calls us to deny ourselves. He is calling us to deny ourselves and live for Him and this is not how Jesus calls us to live. He sees you in your suffering. He sees you as a victim and He is calling you out of that. He is wanting to liberate you from the one who is called to love but instead does violence and fails to protect. These are heavy words, but we must speak openly about this in church. It is with great sadness that the statistics are that as many suffer domestic violence in the church as outside the church. Does not that make you weep? Now, it's important for those who are suffering as victims in this space. On these posters, there are several hotlines for you to call because women, particularly women, because in most cases it's women, who are feeling or are in this situation, they do not feel like they have recourse. They do not know what to do next. Those numbers are extremely helpful for you and I commend them to you if you are in that situation. Now, coming back to Mark. Mark says here, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. There are two things that I want to just touch on there as I head towards the end. Firstly, the sharp intensifying of the concept of adultery has the effect of two things, elevating the status of the wife to the same dignity and also placing the husband under an obligation of fidelity. But secondly, given the context that it was commonplace to divorce a marriage, to opt out of this one, to opt into this one, I think Jesus is speaking specifically to, you can't just get yourself a letter of divorce and move on. And yet there are circumstances in which you will be able to have a legitimate divorce if you are a victim. And I don't think Jesus is speaking to that person. That is, He's saying, anyone who divorces his wife in order to marry another one commits adultery against her. But for the one who is a victim of an adulterer, you are released. And as I'll say shortly, remarriage is an option for that person. So, my summary so far. Marriage is a lifelong commitment that we are called to uphold and reflect the faithfulness of God. And secondly, divorce is permitted in cases of adultery, abandonment, abuse, to protect and release the victim. Now, I want to acknowledge that in the complexity of life, it can be difficult to discern who the victim is. You need a mature Christian who you can be open with to help you discern the circumstances or that which you find yourself in and to help you follow Jesus, to not look for pharisaical loopholes but to live for Him. 
Now, no doubt there are lots of questions that are coming up in people's individual circumstances. I'm not going to do an open Q&A on this topic, it's too sensitive. I've asked that the QR forms that in front of you, that normally have like a feedback form, I've asked them to be modified slightly to allow an anonymous contribution. So that is, if you have a question, but don't even feel like you want to put your name to that, I will receive that question, and you can use the QR form for that. I'm going to release this sermon in part as a pastoral paper that I'll hand out through small groups and through our email, and I'll address some of those questions there. But there are a couple of very quick questions that I think are worth us all listening to. Firstly, is it possible to reconcile? Ought I divorce if there are grounds for it? Now, in the passage where God writes a certificate of divorce for Israel, if we kept reading, we would find that He renews the covenant and He wins them back, ultimately in Jesus. Jesus gives us every spiritual blessing to uphold our marriages and even to dare consider reconciling where there is grounds for divorce. Now, for the victim, divorce is really an option, but Jesus slows us down to consider what reconciliation might look like as we are called to forgive. Now, I think we are all called to forgive in every circumstance, but that will take time a long time for some of us. But reconciliation requires one extra thing, and that is repentance in the person who has perpetrated. And only where both parties are entering that, through repentance and forgiveness, is reconciliation an option. Now, I know couples who are exploring this path, and it is hard, I tell you. Where there is grounds for divorce, and they are pursuing reconciliation, that is a cross-bearing exercise but I thank them for exploring that. But again, as I've spoken to domestic violence, let me say again, the husband who abuses his wife and on bended knee apologizes and pleads for forgiveness and continues to abuse her is unrepentant. There can be no reconciliation in such abuse. And as I've already mentioned, is it possible to remarry? Well, I think, as I've tried to outline, Jesus is protecting and releasing the victim. The adulterer, in my interpretation, ought not to remarry, for they have broken the marital covenant, and Jesus speaks of remarriage of such a person as an adulterer again. Now, again, that is hard words. What I find at the end of Mark 10 are these words that I find myself now holding on to as I ask you to respond to this. No matter what your station, circumstances, or how this sermon has hit you, there is this picture at the end of Mark 10 of blind Bartimaeus who just cries out these beautiful words, these childlike faith words, Jesus, have mercy on me. For those who are married cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. I see the weight and the responsibility I've entered into. For those who are struggling in their marriage, cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. For those who are divorced for any reason, Jesus, have mercy on me. And for those who are single, including divorcees, I thank God for you 
And I ask you to cry, Jesus, have mercy on me. For God is gathering up the messy ones, those with childlike faith. He is calling us to see His faithfulness, His covenant, new covenant in Jesus Christ. For we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus, no matter what we have done. And yet, as we live for Jesus, we really ought to listen to Him and seek to honour Him and obey Him. And so we cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me, and He will turn our upside-down life the glorious way up until we see Him face to face. Let me pray. Father, please meet us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in this morning with the merciful words of Jesus. For He has taken upon Himself our sin, our brokenness. He has come not to be served, but to serve. And would You lift us up that we might see Him and live for Him. Amen.